Will you all give it up one more time for our production team? That was amazing. They have been killing it all week with the videos. I hope, again, you guys have enjoyed it. I have really appreciated watching them and seeing how they are connecting, obviously, to the text that we're teaching. Well, I'm excited to be here tonight. This morning was heavy, and I just want to compliment you guys. You have walked through some very thick waters, so to speak, uh, heavy subject matter, and it was really challenging, for me at least, to talk about the weight of sin and talk about the importance of sin and, and how we need to see it because of, truth be told, how the Bible sees it. And to not be able to offer the solution to sin, not be able to talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm thrilled that we, be, we are able to get now in our text and, and walk through this. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. So if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to get out your pen. Uh, we'll be flipping through uh, Genesis all the way to John and then some other places as well. But just as by way of reminder, we looked at sin this morning. We looked at its origin. And we looked at its effects on all of mankind, you and I both. We were around the tapes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we looked at Adam, and we looked at Eve, and we saw that Adam and Eve, instead of walking with God in a trustful, abiding relationship, said, no, God, we can do life better apart from you. We choose to live in autonomy, away from you, making our own decisions, being the kings and queens, so to speak, of our own lives. And we saw the result of that is that sin now entered into the world, and we saw that its effects were devastating. It didn't just end with Adam and Eve. They passed their nature on to you and I. As Romans chapter 5 says that therefore, just as though sin, just as through sin one, uh, sorry, just as through one man sin entered the world in death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So we inherited the disease of sin. Not just the deeds we do, but our very nature is slanted in a direction with a bent towards sin. And that caused, as you remember from this morning, physical death, it caused spiritual death, and it caused eternal separation from God, our creator, who designed us originally to be in a loving relationship with him. That is how he made us. And we saw Adam and Eve's response to run and to cover and to hide. When the eyes of them were, were opened, right, they, they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And God said, that simply will not do. And even then, in the midst of this sin that happened in the garden, God reveals his plan that actually, according to the scriptures, was set in motion long before this act of sin happened. Do you know that? That God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew the course of action this world was going to take. And he knew that he would send one to redeem all of mankind. Listen to these hints and shadows way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity, strife, between you and the woman, speaking here to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He, a singular male, shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God says, one day there will be a male who will come, who will deal a death blow to sin and to suffering and to Satan forever. And in that process, he will be crushed. God says, even in the garden, that was his plan. And this is the plan of God. And by the way, we know that this idea is set into motion all the way back in Genesis 3, that the shedding of blood would be God's instrument to cover and to forgive sin. We mentioned it the other night, that the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them, stripped away their own acts of self-righteousness and says, no, it's only through my provision 
for the shed blood of another that you may be in right relationship with me. And that idea was so important to God that he didn't want them to forget it. So on a yearly basis, he would have the people of God, the Jewish people, to remember this idea that through the shedding of blood comes the forgiveness of sins. And every year, their high priest of the Jewish nation would enter into the tabernacle or to the temple, and they would take the life of an innocent animal, and its shed blood would allow them to live rightly with God for another year. And every year, the people would remember that idea. They would pray over animals. They would lay their hands on them, the priests would, and confess the sins of all the people onto these animals before they were slain or before they were sent away into the wilderness. They believed in this day and age that they could live rightly with God because of the shed blood of another. And they lived in this system for 1,500 years. I wonder how many times they wondered, what if there was just a, a final lamb? What if there was a lamb that could come once for all and not simply atone for our sin, cover it, but actually take it away that could separate it as far as the east is from the west? I want you to think about the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1 as he introduces to us Jesus for the very first time. It says in John chapter 1 verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To a Jewish mind, they knew exactly what this meant. This is the final sacrifice delivered for us on behalf of God to finally remove our sin once and for all forever. So let's ask that question now. What specifically did Jesus do? Let's talk about his life. Let's talk about his death. Let's talk about his resurrection and his ascension and ultimately his return. As we talked about this morning, if, if the, the key idea of sin is to do life independent from God in autonomy, Jesus lived the perfect life because he lived life with God. According to John chapter 17, he and the Father are one. Jesus wasn't simply a moral example. He was born to die. He came to this earth for one reason and one reason only, to die on behalf of mankind. And there are hints all throughout the book of John about the work that Jesus would do on the cross. Listen to this from John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, I came that mankind would have abundant life, but the way we reach that end of all of us having abundant life is that the good shepherd would lay his life down for the sheep, a breadcrumb. John chapter 10, verse 14, he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up once again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus understood that in his coming, he would freely lay down his life willingly for those that he loved. He had the authority to lay it down and the authority 
to bring it back up once again. And as he talks about sheep, other sheep that weren't present during that day, friends, that is you and me. As he thinks about all the men and women in human history who will hear the gospel message and that will ultimately turn to Christ. He lays yet another bread come in the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he brings all these hints and all these clues early on in his ministry to talk about ultimately what he would do. But he was private to some degree before he went public. But in chapter 12 of John, something begins to change. It says in John chapter 12, verse 23, that Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We mentioned earlier that when Jesus was having his interaction with his mother who had asked him to make wine at the wedding of Cana, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, meaning my time to go to Calvary, to go to the cross, and to lay my life down. It's not time for that. But Jesus understood in John chapter 12, now is the moment. My time has come. And Jesus set his eyes with a stern focus on Jerusalem and ultimately the cross that was in front of him. He says as he continues, my soul has become troubled. And what I say, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify me, your name, then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And in John chapter 13 and 14, hours away now from betrayal and the cross in front of him, Jesus shares his last meal with his disciples. In chapter 13 and chapter 14 of the book of John, it's recorded. He enjoys what is called a Passover meal. And he demonstrates in this meal that had had now thousands of years of history and tradition that the elements that were there were actually pictures of what would happen to Jesus on the cross. That his body would be broken and his blood would be spilt, symbolized by the bread and the wine that they ate and drank that night. And the mood in that room must have been heavy, knowing that the, the last hours that they were now spending with Jesus, the 12 and him, this would be the last uh, moments of time that they would share. And Jesus instructs them in John 14, verses 1 through 4. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. I go now and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to me, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. I wonder in that moment, did they remember all those clues that Jesus had dropped, all those times that he referenced a sheep laying its life down on behalf of another? Were they remembering these hints that he had mentioned? In John now chapter 15, all the way through 17, if you just look at these words, they are full of red letters probably in your Bible. It's Jesus' last words to his disciples before the cross. And Jesus makes some incredible promises here and tells about what will happen to these men in that room after he leaves and what he promises to send after his departure. That'll be part of our talk for tomorrow. And then finally, in John chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken now to the cross just eight short hours from now. 
And Jesus, as you know, goes through six trials. Three of them were Jewish, religious in nature. Three of them were Roman. All of them were illegal. None of them proved uh, any guilt on Jesus' part. None of them provided any credible witnesses. No evidence was provided that Jesus was anything other than he said he was. He was God in the flesh. These were puppet courts, guises of injustice done to Jesus. But Jesus ends up before a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, a name that many of you have heard before. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor, and he had the authority in that day. He had the power to either release Jesus and set him free or to send him to the cross. Pilate honestly wanted nothing to do with this mess that had been brought before him as the Jewish people paraded this king of kings before Pilate. Pilate says in John chapter 18, verse 29, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him and said, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves and judge him according to your law, speaking to the Jews. In their response, the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So they laid their cards on the table. Pilate, we want this man dead. And this is where things got real. And Pilate now has a sidebar conversation with Jesus. Pilate enters now again in John 18, verse 33, into the praetorium. And he summons Jesus and he asks him, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, the theme of our week, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate, in this moment, sees no guilt in Jesus and ultimately tries to get out of this and tries to now appease the, the mob by a prisoner exchange, the video mentioned with this guy by the name of Barabbas. How about we kill this man instead and set Jesus free? Pilate took him then to Jesus and scourged him in chapter, nine, verse, chapter 19, verse 1. They wanted nothing to do with this prisoner exchange. And then in 19, chapter 4, Pilate comes out again one more time and says, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. So he is scourged before the people. Pilate says he is innocent. I find no issue with him. But the crowd simply were not having it. They wanted him dead. And in John 19, verse 6, it says, The chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And finally it says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they handed him over to be crucified. And in this moment, Jesus was now subject to one of the most horrific means of death 
in all of human history. You need to know a little bit about the process of crucifixion. And I, didn't, I don't share this to, to gross you out or to, to, to have some emotional response to it. I want you to know what this process was. Crucifixion was invented originally by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. And for hundreds of years prior to them putting Jesus on the cross, the Romans had literally made crucifixion in art form. They had studied it, they had perfected it, and they had worked on it. There's two things that you need to know about it. Number one, crucifixion is always public. It is meant to be a deterrent to crime, and that is what Rome used it for. Uh, it'd be like us taking uh, a criminal today and executing them at a shopping mall where everybody is hanging out so everybody could see it. And secondly, it was the goal of Rome to inflict the greatest amount of pain over the longest period of time. The other forms of crucifixion leading up to this simply didn't last long enough. The victims died too quickly. So the Romans figured out a way to keep people alive on a cross for hours as they suffered an agonizing death. And to do that, they must follow a very strict set of rules. And the process began with what we already read, what's called scourging. They would strip the individual of all their clothing. They were crucified naked. Put that in your mind's eye for a moment. These pictures that we see that are obviously appropriate for us to look at isn't really what was happening. Jesus was stripped naked because of humiliation and the shame that would have been involved in that process. They would bend the individual over a stump about two feet off the ground and they would shackle then their arms and their ankles to that stump face first down with your back then exposed by metal rings connecting you then to this, this post. And the scourging was done by an individual uh, who was named Elictor. He was a Roman bodyguard responsible for punishing people. And these individuals were professionals. It was their job to take you to the line and then back off just to here so that you didn't die. And their instrument of choice was called a flagellum or a cat of nine tails. It was like a 14 to 18 inch baseball bat. And on the end of it were all these leather pieces. And embedded in these leather strips were pieces of glass or metal, or bone, or anything that was sharp that they could stick in there. And the way it worked is they would take that, that bat and they would fillet over the back of the individual that was being crucified. And they would rip the skin off the back as they released from the whipping. And the, the process involved, obviously, your flesh being torn from you. The exposure and the process of this uh, caused would ultimately result in hypovolemic shock. And this is what they were trying to avoid. A s extreme loss of blood and fluids that would cause then the individual uh, to die too quickly because their heart could not deliver fluids and blood to the most vital of organs. So what they learned to do was beat a victim to the point of what the Romans called half death, where they would pass out. And when they passed out because of the extreme pain that they were in, they would take a bucket of salt water and they would throw it on the victim immediately revive them, and that process were, was repeated over and over and over again until the Romans felt that that individual had had enough. This is the process that Jesus went through. They put a crown of thorns on him, a robe on him. They said, all hail the king of the Jews, mocking him, and they led him down a road at the conclusion of this process called the Way of Sorrows, the Via Dolorosa. And he walked from Antonio's fortress where he was beaten by Pilate's henchmen to the place outside the city, to Golgotha, to the 
the location of the cross. John chapter 19, verse 17 records this for us. They took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. And in chapter 19 now of John, verse 26, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, referencing John who wrote this book, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. For the hour that the disciple took her, from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all the things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, brought it into his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in that moment, after hours of crucifixion, he dies on the cross. Now, just as important of the fact that Jesus died is asking the question, why he died. Why did Jesus say the Son of God must come to this earth to lay his life down as a ransom for all of mankind? Well, God tells us very clearly. John three sixteen, a verse that you know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. God says the reason I sent Jesus is because of mankind in the midst of their sin, men and women alike, though they were in this state of sin, I love them. He goes on in Ephesians chapter two to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. God says again, I sent Christ in mercy, in love, as an act of kindness to humanity that I love so dearly. In this love, 1 John says, is in this love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for sins. Propitiation is an interesting term. It means to satisfy. We remember earlier in our study together this morning that sin brought about something, that the wages of sin was death. God demanded death as the result of sin. Whether it was the death of an innocent goat or a lamb or whatever it may be in the Old Testament, something had to die to satisfy God's penalty for sin. And God says Jesus is that satisfaction, that something must die. Now we need to remember, God can't wink at sin. He is equally kind as he is just. He is loving and merciful, but he has to deal with sin. And by satisfying sin's requirement through Jesus, who God says did just that, he was also able to, according to the scriptures, reconcile you and I back to him. Colossians 1 talks about this beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. 
And although you were formerly aliens and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The idea of reconcile literally means to buy back that which was created to be with me and to live in a relationship with me because of sin that was separated. But God now brought us back. He bought us back by purchasing us through the blood of Christ to come back into right relationship with us. And the means through which he did that is called imputation. Listen to how Peter talks about this. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made us alive in spirit. Do you hear how Peter talks about it? He says, The just dies for the unjust. It's the most beautiful exchange in all of human history. Think of it like a bank account. You've got our account that's full of sin and Jesus' account that is full of righteousness. Jesus withdrew our sin out of our account and placed it into his own. And he withdrew his righteousness from his account and put it into ours. That's called imputation. And God saw Jesus on the cross loaded down with the sin of all of humanity, though he was not, in essence, sinning himself. The, the weight of sin was put on him. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 makes this picture so clear. It says, He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The greatest exchange in human history. He took our sin and we received his righteousness. And because of that, God was then able to call you and I free. We were no longer guilty. The Bible uses the word justification to describe this idea. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith or declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace and with which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. God says, you are no longer guilty before me. I declare you righteous. Now, are we actually righteous? No, we did nothing to earn or deserve that. But the judge, for instance, in a, in a, in a court of law, as we stand before him, says, you are guilty, but you do not have the means to pay the bill that judge then steps out of the stand, pays the bill on our behalf, and declares us righteous and free to go. That is the picture of the gospel because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are justified before a holy God. And not only that, we are adopted into his family. We are called sons and daughters of the living God. It's a beautiful picture of all that Christ's death accomplished. That is the why behind why Jesus had to die. Well, how do we receive this? How do we embrace this idea? The Bible says that we do it simply by faith. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is so clear to say, this salvation that you receive is not based on you. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your earning. It's not based on anything that you did to somehow earn this process. It was done for you, on behalf of you, because God loves you so that you may not boast in it. And it's simply received by faith. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 affirms this. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. But in that, something still has to happen. John chapter 1 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. There has to be a response from us. There has to be a movement toward God in that process to embrace by faith what he is so freely offered. Now, how do we know that Jesus is the solution to all of our sin? I want to return to John now chapter 20 and return to the stories we finish our time together of a guy we met earlier in the book. You guys remember Nicodemus, the religious leader who came to Jesus in chapter three of John by night and he said, hey, I think you're a good teacher. I want you to notice now where Nicodemus is after Jesus has died. In John chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a, of a hundred pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet lain. Nicodemus is there, anointing Jesus' body for burial. No longer in the guise of night, no longer ashamed to be seen with Jesus, embracing him. His actions show you clearly who he believes Jesus to be. And then as the story finishes in John chapter 20, as we read and even saw in the video, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already been taken from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and as they were going to the tomb, the two were running together and the one disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings laying there but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered now into the tomb. And he saw the linen, linen wrappings laying there in the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the other linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb first also now entered and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. In this moment, we see the final accomplishment of Jesus, that he is resurrected. His payment for our sin was accepted by God. That is what the resurrection, in a sense, entails. Friends, you see here now in total, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only have you seen what happened, but you saw why it happened. All of this had to be accomplished to pave the way, to provide a way for a sinful mankind to find their way back to God. 
And the only way that that was possible was for one to die on behalf of another and for us to accept that gift that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude to ask you one question. And as I do that, I want to invite Jeff out, Mr. Lou, and as well as the band. And I want you to consider this question, and Mr. Lou is going to lead you in a time here in just a second. The text that we read earlier in our time together, Jesus said to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then Jesus poses the question, do you believe this? And I want to leave you with that question as well. Do you believe this? All that you've seen and all that you've heard, all the evidence that's been placed before you, are you willing to believe? Let me pray for us. And then we'll finish our time. Father, thank you for the story and the truth that we see. Thank you that you are a loving Father. Truth be told, and you lay it out before us. And God, I pray in this time, as we take a moment to pause and reflect, as Mr. Lou leads us through what we're about to do, that our hearts would be soft and we would be open to your grace and your goodness and the forgiveness of sins that you offer.